electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody, and here's what's ahead of us, the battle over jobless benefits. Would extending the extra $600 a week help or hinder the economy? With payments for millions of Americans hanging in the balance as Congress works on a compromise, we'll have that debate. Plus, from 30 bucks to 93 and back to the mid-30s again. That's the story of Nikola since going public this year. But one analyst says the electric truck maker is a buy ahead of its first report as a public company tonight. He'll tell us why. And a retirement reality check with rates at fresh lows. A look at what you actually need if you plan to retire post-COVID. But we begin with today's markets. Rahel Solomon here with those numbers for us. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. So the markets are having a bit of a mixed session today. You can see the Dow and S&P both in positive territory. The Nasdaq, this is a little different, in negative territory. So this happened within the last hour or so and comes even after it set another intraday high shortly after the open. Apple, one of the top contributors to the Dow right now. Of course, we continue to watch for it to cross that $2 trillion market cap milestone. So the magic number for that to happen would be 467.77. I'm still working on my hand writing, but watch that level trading closer to 438.71 at this point. Uh, also, we're watching Ford. Also in focus after that big shakeup in the company C-suite, CEO Jim Hackett will retire and be replaced by Chief Operating Officer Jim Farley. That's effective October 1st. Under Hackett's leadership, the stock has declined 37%. So watch that stock. And finally, look at the major U.S. airlines, all trading higher today. American Airlines leading the way. Last I checked, was up about 5%. I'm actually going to clear that. Still up about 5%. JetBlue up about 3.5%. So this is the second straight day of gains for many of them. Kelly, Southwest, the uh, laggard here, up almost 1%, if you can call it that. I'll send it back to you. Yeah, we'll round up. Rahel, thanks very much. Now let's get to Washington, where negotiations over the next stimulus package are still ongoing. Kayla Tausche is here with where things stand at this hour. Kayla? Kelly, the negotiators from uh, Democratic uh, representatives in Congress and the White House are expected to meet again today at 3.30 p.m. in Speaker Pelosi's office. Yesterday's meeting did not yield a deal, but it did yield some positive rhetoric with uh, Senate Democrat uh, Chuck Schumer saying that uh, there did appear to be some agreement on a sense of urgency to move forward. But this morning on the Senate floor, it appeared that all partisan gloves were off. The Democrats are blocking it all. It's like they expect applause for merely keeping a civil tone with the president's team. Never mind, they're still obstructing any action for our country. The Republican leader is so tied in a knot by his own caucus and his president that all he can do is give Alice in Wonderland partisan speeches. 
It remains unclear whether there has been any compromise reached on any of the substantive portions of the proposals that either party has put forward. Kelly, we've talked a lot about the fact that the deadline for those eviction protections and expanded unemployment benefits have already passed. But there are also some other deadlines coming up. Notably, this Saturday is the last day that companies who have not received a small business loan could apply for those loans. And then, of course, at the end of September, uh, many large air carriers and national security companies, uh, the restrictions on them keeping employees employed uh, run out there. So certainly there are many dates on the calendar to look forward to. We will see whether this meeting yields anything. We also expect the White House to give a briefing momentarily and could get an update there as well. Kelly? Kayla, what's the deadline for Congress here? Well, it would seem that the deadline has already passed, Kelly, a couple weeks ago when uh, Republicans came back from uh, congressional recess. They were talking about the end of the month as their deadline. The Treasury Secretary said that it was his intent to pass something by then. Certainly the differences between what the Republicans then released and what the Democrats had passed in May are very stark. Uh, Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell on the floor uh, basically blamed Democrats for dragging their feet for the last week, even though it has been about two and a half months since Democrats, Democrats rather passed their plan. Kelly. All right. Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche with the latest there. The big question is, will extending the extra $600 in weekly unemployment benefits help or hurt the economy? Critics say the money is holding back the labor force participation rate. Others say it's essential to keep this whole economy going. Joining me now with both sides of the story are Barry Knapp, the managing partner at Ironsides Macroeconomics, and Bill Rogers, chief economist at the Heldridge Center for Workforce Development at Rutgers. He was the chief economist at the Labor Department under President Clinton. It's great to have you both here. And uh, Bill, I'll turn to you first to make the case for why this, uh, extending the $600 benefit is necessary. Well, number one is um, we've basically begun to build a uh, bridge to recovery and if you drop off the 600 to 200 dollars you're actually removing one of the spans and what's happening is that uh, you know you have uh, the economy's been growing but because we've turned the spigot on but not fast enough it's not the aggregate demand the need for workers is not as great because i always agree if we were having a strong robust economy or even a stronger economy job growth yeah, I would agree that in the research does show when you have generous uh, benefits, they end up uh, re retarding or less lowering the odds or the odds or the desire for people to work. But the problem is, is other people, reasons other people are, are not working is because of child care. It's because they're fearful of, um, of uh, getting back into the workplace and they may have a pre-existing condition where they could get sick. So, you know, the, the issue is, is not only extending these benefits, but also providing state and local governments the needed aid. Because if you don't do that, yeah. you also then are going to create a problem where you're not going to have the demand, the needed demand to support pushing workers back into the workplace. And there has been a lot of research lately, Barry, demonstrating that there's no negative uh, effect on the labor market from extending the unemployment benefits. There was a Yale study, even Evercore ISI said they didn't really see it keeping people out of the labor force. But you feel differently. Why? Well, the, the, you had Stephen Davis on last week talking about the Yale study and how the Yale study didn't really look at people that didn't have a job to go back to. They looked at, you know, people that were invited back to their old job. But, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that that's really all that germane. It's so early uh, in the crisis, as that professor just detailed. You know, it's, there is a question of demand at this point, and there's no doubt that, um, you know, that the 
transfer payments made a big contribution to that V-shaped or what I've been calling Y-shaped recovery and in consumption that's taken place thus far, at least in terms of, you know, core retail sales. The question is, you know, and this is what the government, the government's really good at adding stimulus, whether we're talking about the Fed or the fiscal authorities, they're not so good at removing that stimulus. My best contacts in D.C. tell me we're probably headed to something more like $400 per week with both a state contingency that the Democrats are pushing for, you know, it will remain in place until the unemployment rate hits X percent. Right. As well as an, a time expiration that the Republicans are asking for, because that time expiration is so crucial. If you go back to the last business cycle, 2014 was a shocking year, right? We we fought over this extension to 99 weeks of unemployment benefits for years. Finally, in 2013, it ended. And then if you look at what happened to the labor market in 2014, I mean, it had its strongest labor force growth the entire business cycle, five years into the business cycle. Right. Um, you had an incredible pickup in what Davis calls worker reallocation, which is the quarterly sum of hiring and, um, uh, and separations. That's the dynamism of the labor market. That led directly to a big jump in the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, which is probably the best in, uh, wage measure out there. You know, the labor force participation and employment to population ratios for prime age workers, both improved decidedly that year. So, yeah. you know, we have to be careful about how long we keep these this, this um, stimulus in place. And that's really my argument is that we do need to cut it to a level that's not disincentivizing people. And it needs to be you know, contingent with a time, you know, a born on Budweiser date on it. <laughs> or the expiration yeah. date. Bill, let, let me turn to you to respond to that. And also, perhaps the difference here is how far we are into the recovery. I mean, in this case, uh, it's a sharp one. It has a sharp rebound, uh, but we're only a few months in. Uh, in 2014, we were several years in. So what would your response be? Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, I agree with Barry in that uh, the, at the end of the day, we'll probably see some kind of triggers or some kind of some kind of uh, sort of stepping down. Uh, the, there's the Romney-Collins bill, uh, which 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 does something similar to that. But uh, in and to you know to address his concerns about you know using a study that was early on, uh, I'm looking at the UI claims and and matching them up to the uh, the list of states. There are 36 states that have um, there have their positivity rates for the COVID virus that are above 10 percent. And what I'm finding is that over the last, say, basically five to six weeks, when you track this data, you end up seeing that states with the, with, uh, that are on this list with 10% or higher on their, on their positivity rates, they have higher UI claims. This is our best leading indicator of where the economy is going. Mm -hmm. And also, the longer you're on, the, uh, on this list, uh, meaning your, your, your positivity rate exceeds this 10% range, uh, your, your claims are higher, too. So... So that's that's for me is one of the real big energies as to why I'm very concerned about you know pulling back from the $600 at this moment. Yeah. Uh, the other reason too is we have to remind ourselves many Americans, particularly those who have been hardest hit by this this uh, pandemic, they were already fragile economies, fragile households prior to the prior to the pandemic and to the recession. So you know, for me, I'm also, I'm actually quite happy that people are getting uh, amounts of money that are uh, close to or about to be above what their take-home pay was, because hopefully they're using that to pay for pay off that pre-existing debt, and then to also pay off ex uh, existing or de debt that that, came, that they incurred mm -hmm. as the pandemic emerged on them. So 
so what this is really getting back is, and Barry used the word stimulus. This is stimulus, right, that, that compared to, let's say, a payroll tax cut, what the president wants to do. Um, you get a bigger bang for your buck uh, using uh, using UI benefits. Yeah, and hearing so, your discussion, I wonder if we need not just a state and a time contingency, uh, but maybe even one where it's con- a COVID contingent based on, like you said, on the, those states where you're over 10% positive of your testing rate. Still, Congress has enough uh, on its hands, but gentlemen, I thank you for both sides of the argument today. It's been good to yeah. have you here. Barry Knapp and Bill Rogers on the future of jobless benefits. Let's turn to markets now with some big headlines this afternoon. Gold crossing the $2,000 mark to hit a record intraday high of more than $2,019 an ounce. There you can see the move behind me. And Treasury yields keep sinking. The 10-year is falling now to just over half a percent. 0.513 is where we stand. Stocks are holding on to their modest gains. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq is riding a five-day win streak. It hit another all-time high earlier before turning lower, and the S&P touched its highest intraday level since Feb. We also wonder if investors are starting to hedge now that we're just 90 days away from the presidential election. For more on all of this, let's welcome in Gina Sanchez, CEO of Chantico Global, and Charles Babrinskoy, who is head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Gina, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on these moves in gold and bonds, especially today? Well, you know, they're, they're not that surprising. The, the conditions that help fuel a rally in gold are present and continue to be present. If you look uh, at when gold performs well, it tends to be when interest rates are low or falling. Um, and uh, that's a check mark there. Uh, if there's uncertainty in the markets, that's a check mark th- there. Um, if there's, you know, concern around the strength of the dollar. Um, so all of these things taken together are continuing to fuel gold. And you just, you have nowhere to turn to um, for yield. And so the the rally in gold has been extraordinary since the beginning of the pandemic. And I don't I think it actually has a ways to go. All right. And Charlie, I know in the meantime, you've been watching the value stocks, which are extremely cheapo, <laughs> as we all know. Um, but I'm curious what your advice to investors would be and, and how plunging rates factor into that. Well, um, when you we think the most dangerous words in the world are uh, this time is different and these are unprecedented low interest rates in the face of extremely high deficits and and federal borrowing uh, at some point people are going to demand a real return on what the money they lend to the government and I admit I've been saying that for more than a year more (laughs) than a couple of years but at some point 50 basis point return on the 10-year makes no sense and so when that ends uh, it's going to be painful for bondholders the math is is really ugly. You should do the math on what 150 basis point move if we return to a 2% 10-year, how crushing that would be to somebody that buys a 10-year today. So hmm. avoid 10-year bonds is my headline number one. And headline number two is inflation. Historically, when governments spend much more than they um, take in, they do it by in some form or other printing money, and that tends to produce inflation. And that's good for gold, um, but it's not good for interest rates. I, I see you almost ducking as you lay out the argument, because as we know, it, it has been uh, such a treacherous time for making this case for investors. It's probably as much about how to avoid mistakes as it is about positioning for the certainty that inflation is coming. So on the equity side, what would your recommendations be? Yeah, just we believe that you have to buy things that are trading at a discount to their intrinsic value, that stocks have a value. It's not just a piece of paper. It's the, your legal claim to the future cash flows of that company. And we believe right now value stocks, there's some great opportunities of stocks that are trading very cheap compared to their intrinsic value. 
Um, they tend to be more industrial. They tend to be financial services firms. They're not technology firms. So we're very excited about being able to buy Goldman Sachs at less than book value or Mosaic, the fertilizer company at you know, what we think is a big discount or hmm. Borg Warner or Viacom CBS. There's just a lot of wonderful companies trading at very attractive prices. They're not the growth companies that everybody wants right now, but right. they are very attractive to us. I see Lazard, Nielsen, another couple of names that would be on that list. Uh, Gina, what would your recommendations be? Actually, we completely agree there. There's really hard right now to find good value. The only value type play that seems to be working has been the resurgence of financials. The financial sector is, is the only sector um, that has started to gain some momentum from a cheap place. Everything else, if it was cheap at the beginning of the year or at the beginning of the pandemic, it is still cheap. Uh, and if it was expensive, it's continuing to be expensive. So momentum um, has definitely been fueling a lot of these markets. So financials has been your only way to get anything at a decent uh, price right now. Yeah. And like you said, they're coming back a little bit of late, but the year to date chart's still pretty ugly. I will leave it there. Thank you both for uh, making the case for some contrarian picks today. Gina Sanchez and Charlie Bubrinskoy. Coming up, a bold bet. Despite its massive volatility, one analyst says investors should buy Nikola ahead of its results tonight, saying it could rally 10 to 20 percent. He'll join us to explain. Plus, we'll look at how much money you need now to retire after the COVID crisis has pushed rates to fresh lows. And some call them speculative. Others say they're a great way to go public. Either way, SPACs are getting a lot of attention and now their own ETF. We'll explain it all ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's been a wild ride for shares of Nikola. They're up 10% since going public in June, but in that time frame, the stock reached a high of $93 before dropping to as low as 30. We're at 37 right now. The company is scheduled to report its first results as a public company tonight. And my next guest says investors should buy ahead of those results. Emmanuel Rosner is lead U.S. auto and auto technology analyst at Deutsche Bank. Emmanuel, welcome. And remind me, are they making cars? They're not making cars yet. They're developing zero-emission vehicle trucks. Uh, their first ones will be coming out uh, the back half of next year, 2021. That's going to be battery electric vehicles. And then they will have fuel, uh, they will have fuel cell electric trucks uh, by 2023. And that's really what's innovative about this company. Right. And to be clear, I meant by are they making cars, are they making any kind of automobiles right now? So the answer is no, they're not going to be making them until next year. So what's going to be in the results Correct. tonight? So that's, that's exactly our point. The point is they're reporting results today. There's no real revenues as of now. It's mostly been a business plan, an exciting business plan. And so we think that the management should use the opportunity of speaking to investors today to update them on a lot of uh, items of interest, which could actually uh, you know, be potentially positive for the stock. So, um, so namely, go ahead. We're, talking about, we're talking about naming uh, their customers. Obviously, if they want to go into production next year, they need to have 
fleet customers that will uh, you know sign up for those zero emission vehicle trucks. With the, naming them would give a lot of credibility to the story. They're looking for hydrogen station partners. We think that uh, an update on how that's going would also add a lot of credibility. Um, and then the Badger pickup truck, you know, there's been uh, it reported that there was a lot of reservations. So giving a reservation number or a manufacturing partner, essentially a lot of updates on how this business is going so far. Yeah. would actually validate uh, potentially the story. No, it's, it's just a very strange situation to be in when a company is basically reporting results that are a business plan. <laughs> I mean, it, this, you do feel like you're almost an early stage venture capital investor, you know, looking at ideas and trying to figure out the path to profitability and all of that. Is it a little weird to you that this is a publicly traded company already? So you're absolutely right, Kelly. Um, the, uh, the reality is that this is almost a new world, right? The, those listings through uh, SPAC, are essentially happening uh, earlier than it would have to an IPO. That's probably the reason why, you know, when we when initiated coverage on this stock a few weeks ago, we have a hold rating. There's obviously a decent amount of execution risk to even make the first car happening, build a factory and all that. This, uh, the trading call we're making here is essentially one that's opportunistic after a massive pullback, as you mentioned before. I think we'll get some potential positive updates, but yeah. I think that there's a lot of execution risk, and I think we will need validation yeah. from external customers to believe in the story. No, that's a great point. We'll see if we get any of that tonight. And in the meantime, we'll see what uh, investors do with the stock. Emmanuel, thank you so much, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Emmanuel Rosner joining me from Deutsche Bank. Still ahead, our quiet climber of the day. It's a biotech name that's hitting all-time highs and investors may be missing. It has nothing to do with COVID. We'll tell you the story there. Plus the wild move in oil this year, taking continental resources down with it. The stock falling after reporting a big earnings miss. They did reinstate guidance. Analysts were impressed by that. We're off the low stocks down about 3%. And the CEO will join us. To discuss the outlook for the company and the industry, William Berry, the new CEO on the exchange after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back. Let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thank you very much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. At least 10 people are dead and hundreds injured after an enormous explosion in Beirut caused extensive damage. According to a Lebanese security official, that blast occurred in the port area where there are warehouses with highly explosive materials. You can go to CNBC.com for more on what is a developing story. There are now more than a million customers without power from the strong winds and tornadoes associated with tropical storm Isaias. The storm is continuing to travel up the East Coast, hitting New Jersey the hardest, with more than 325,000 customers impacted. Virginia is a close second, with nearly 300,000 impacted by the storm and losing power. 
And Roger Penske has reversed course. The Indianapolis 500 will be held without spectators later this month. Penske, who bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in January, initially said he'd cancel if people couldn't come see the race in person. But with COVID still spreading, Penske now says, quote, we need to be safe and smart about this. You are up to date, Kel. That's the news update. I'll send it back to you. Yeah, another blow for normalcy, but totally understand. Yep. Sue, thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Let's get today to today's quiet climber, shall we? It's a stock hitting all-time highs that may not be on most investors' radar. Today, we're looking at Acceleron Pharma. It's ticker XLRN. It's trading slightly lower today. It's a pharma company that develops drugs for hematological and pulmonary diseases. It recently received FDA approval for a key drug in partnership with Bristol-Myers, and that has a lot of investors excited. It also has a number of phase three trials underway in its pipeline. The stock has no sell ratings on the street, and its average price target implies a 20% rally from here, even after all of the excitement. It is a little on the smaller end, market cap just over $6 billion, but it has nearly doubled year-to-date. It's up 98%. From its 52-week low, it's basically tripled up 178%, and the company is scheduled to report on Thursday. So keep that all in mind for Acceleron Pharma. Meanwhile, shares of Continental Resources are falling today after that company reported a bigger-than-expected loss in the second quarter. They shut down 55% of oil production to deal with diminished demand due to the pandemic. Now, despite these headwinds, the company reinstated its previously suspended guidance, so at least giving some investors a picture there. Joining me now to discuss is Continental Resources CEO Bill Barry. Bill, welcome, and it's great to have you here. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be here. What would you say is the diagnosis for the oil market today? Well, I think what we're seeing is uh, continuing dynamics with uh, OPEC Plus exercising some discipline. There's still a little bit of a hangover from the inventories that are out there. And, of course, coronavirus is uh, dampening demand. So those three things are all real important in driving the oil price as we see it going forward. And right now it's in the 40 range. That's probably not sustainable long term, uh, but it's probably where we are for a while. So do you think in the long term the, the sustainable price is higher? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There's just at today's oil price at $40 oil price, that's not strong enough incentive to get production to growth that's needed for the world uh, and the world demands. So we're probably seeing long term something in the 50 to 60 range. Sure. And I know that would make a big financial difference for your company. Tell me about the production that you've restarted and what the next kind of thresholds are that you're looking at. Well, Kelly, we probably lived through uh, probably one of the most uh, tempestuous type of quarters I've ever seen in the 40 years I've been in this, uh, clearly the most uh, most volatile that we've seen in the whole time I've been in this industry. Uh, and we've we've gone from talking about black swans to now we're talking with uh, black uh, flocks of black swans, if you will. If you look at what's happened with uh, coronavirus, with uh, oil price collapse going negative, with the uh, Russians and Saudis uh, price war, so all these things have kind of driven to a completely different market than what we've seen before. But going forward, uh, you know, I think there's this discipline out there that's going to provide a little of a foundation for the, the price. And, and for our company, you know, we brought all our production, all our oil production back on uh, in August. So we're back up and running almost full tilt now. And I know it's important you try to avoid layoffs uh, as well during this time. Um, I have one more question for you about the oil market. Overall, are we coming out of this, uh, the U.S., having gained or lost market share to the rest of the world? Because we remember how difficult these fights were the last couple months about whether or not we were going to cut production. Yeah, clearly with the constrained capital that's being spent in this environment right now in the United States, the U.S. is going to be losing market share 
on a worldwide production basis. Well, if, if that's the case, is it just going to come back as the market recovers, or do you think this is a permanent loss? No, I think it's just a, a temporary. What we're seeing now is um, uh, with the reduction in capital spend, we're going to probably see a couple million barrels a day come out of the U.S. And as oil prices come back up and stability looks like is out there for supply and demand, you'll see companies uh, start coming into a little bit more of a spend basis. But I don't think you'll see the growth that we saw in the past, you know, where some companies were trying to look at double-digit type of growth. Uh, but we will see production coming off of a low of 10 million, we'll be going back up uh, after we reach that low. Quick, quick final question. I want to sneak in here. Do you think consolidation, which we haven't seen, frankly, that much of, is over for the sector, or should we expect to see a lot more of it? Yeah, and I, I think you've seen a little bit of evidence with some companies out there that consolidation is uh, something that happens. Uh, there's always um, different activities going on in the oil industry, and as we see different changes with oil prices, that drives different uh, change in behavior. So. I think you'll probably see some more consolidation in this industry. It's probably needed uh, in some way. Yeah, especially given the new landscape that you're describing. Well, Bill, thanks again for joining us uh, now at the helm as CEO. We really appreciate it. Well, Kelly, thank you very much for your time. Appreciate you having a chance to be on. Bill Berry is the CEO of Continental Resources. And we've got a news alert on Apple now. Let's head out to Josh Lipton for that story. Josh? So some, Kelly, some changes here at Apple. Phil Schiller, a longtime veteran of the company, is going to continue to lead the App Store and Apple events. But Greg Joswiak, another longtime leader, he's going to take on the role of Senior VP of Worldwide Marketing. So he's going to be in charge of uh, Apple's product management and product marketing here. Schiller saying here, I started Apple when he was 27. This year I turned 60, and it's time, he says, for some planned changes in my life. Kelly, back to you. All right. As the company approaches the $2 trillion valuation, Mark, Josh, we appreciate it. Thank you, Josh Lipton. Coming up, China is calling the U.S. thieves when it comes to TikTok. There's an ETF for everything, including SPACs and pandemic. What pandemic? That's what the hedge fund industry is saying. Also, it's bras versus beat up jeans. It's all ahead in rapid fire. It's right after this. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to take on the headlines are Seema Modi, Rahel Solomon, and Leslie Picker. Welcome, everybody. And first up, the clock is ticking for TikTok to get a deal done by September 15th in order to avoid a ban in the U.S. And Chinese state media is now firing back, slamming the U.S. as a rogue country for its planned, quote, smash and grab, Seema, of the social media app. My, how the tables have turned. Yeah, Kelly, from the Chinese perspective, they're watching their beloved ByteDance, the parent of TikTok, unfairly being thrust into this national security discussion, and therefore it's prompted a strong pushback and very strong rhetoric from the Chinese, whether you look at Weibo, the social media platform, or Global Times, the newspaper, which is widely seen as backed by the Chinese government, which actually said that in response to what's happening to TikTok, China should take aim or revenge at Apple. So this narrative and how this plays out, the acquisition uh, by Microsoft, is being watched very closely. I think it raises an existential question, Kelly. Will other foreign governments examine the success of U.S. companies in their respective countries going forward? Uh, it raises some really interesting questions on, on really how this plays out. Yeah, and Rahel, we still don't know exactly. I mean, you know, the, the U.S., the White House president has said one thing, but I mean, now there's a discussion about, you know, looking to do something about TikTok in the next couple of days. This was just stated at the White House. So 
<laughs> this is, I mean, this story it could change. By tomorrow, we could be talking about a totally different outcome for TikTok, but its future here does, does not look that great absent U.S. ownership. It doesn't, and it's sending a panic amongst its owners, its users, Kelly. Uh, one comment that I read on our, one of our websites, one commenter saying, well, then I really won't have a life if TikTok goes away. TikTok is literally <laughs> my life. So I'm not on TikTok, so I can't quite relate, but I think it's really interesting the reaction that we're seeing from users of TikTok um, which is growing exponentially, it seems like, by the day. Yeah, and it's popular, Leslie, not just uh, as a diversion, but even politically, and there's some question mm -hmm. about how this is factoring into the election coming up in 90 days. I, I think that's the key question here, especially among people who are watching this one. You know, are these motivations politically driven? Are they security driven? Uh, there are arguments to be made on both sides here, but it certainly is something to consider as we look at kind of the future of this asset. Yeah, Seema, it just seems interesting to me that in the kind of weeks after we shut the, the China's Houston consulate for spying, for the sort of egregious spying activity the U.S. was laying out, that now we're being accused of being the rogue actors. I'm not comparing, you know, the future of TikTok to you know, spying on an, an individual basis, but it, it does seem like it, the gloves are off. And it's basically each yeah. nation for its own. It doesn't, there's no precedent here. It's national interest comes first, period. And you could likely use this example of TikTok as yet another reason why you'll see this decoupling uh, further play out between the United States and China. And if that's the case, which countries benefited from that? Will they actually seek that as an opportunity will be a another key question. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we'll move on to my other favorite story of the day. It's SPACs. And we have Ms. Picker for this one. <laughs> uh, a number of companies, as you guys have all noticed, are going public via these special purpose acquisition companies. Shorthand, we call them SPACs. Goldman says there have been 51 SPAC offerings this year, raising a record $21.5 billion. That's more than double the amount this time last year. Now, of course, there's going to be an ETF to track the performance of companies that have gone public via SPACs. But, Leslie, this Nikola example after the bell tonight is so emblematic. They have no revenues. They're basically just giving us a business plan. And, and by the way, as you know well, going public via a SPAC is very expensive. It's very expensive. And as an investor in one of these things, you may not get that typical uh, IPO pop that you'd see with a, a traditional IPO operating company. And so I think it's important for investors. They're probably hearing a lot about SPACs in the news right now, and they're saying, hmm, how can I get on this bandwagon? Maybe a diversified ETF is the way to do this. One major red flag for an ETF here is this idea of a, li an, a liquidity mismatch. This mm. idea that in a traditional SPAC, uh, you have the right as an investor to redeem uh, if you do not like the deal that is put forth. Mm. With an ETF, I'm not exactly sure how those redemption rights would work. You hmm. would probably be stuck even if you don't like that. Uh, so it may be a little safer, at least for the time being, if you're really interested in the SPAC space to invest in the individual securities. That's a great point. I didn't even realize that you had the option, if you didn't like the deal, to, to claim your money back. Right. Rahel, also this comes at a time when, even though IPOs have performed relatively well, there hasn't been a ton of investor interest. And it just seems clear, like, this is the hot new kid on the block, and therefore everyone's piling in. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, right? So the Renaissance IPO ETF, by the way, gaining just about $75 million of new money in 2020. So I think that's interesting. Maybe it's the shiny new toy of 2020. Right. Uh, IPO certainly had a great year last year. This year, not so, uh, not so much. And so SPACs is the new thing that I feel like we talk about a lot. And who better to talk about it than Leslie? Uh, <laughs> Leslie can attest to that, certainly. Exactly. And quickly, Seema, there also, I mean, we've had... We have the sports one that's coming public in the next week or two um, and so forth. But it is a good reminder that I wonder if 
it's a huge opportunity. People have been complaining for years. We want earlier access to these companies. We can't get them until they're on the public market. They're too big. They don't have growth from it's too late. Well, feels like this is the flip side of the coin. Here's a business plan. Give us your money. Yeah, and actually on that note, Kelly, I would just point out a conversation I had with a wealth man manager at a top investment bank said now he's starting to receive more inbound requests from his high net worth clients, not just to get into the pre-IPO of Airbnb whenever that may happen, but also to get more exposure to these SPACs. Perhaps that reflects why we're starting to see the build out of these financial tools like an exchange traded fund that will allow everyday investors to get that level of access they, they perhaps want because, as you say, it's become very popular, the hot kid on yeah. And meanwhile, I like this story in juxtaposition. Hedge funds don't count them out of the game just yet. They had an awful first quarter. Very few of them launched. The March performance uh, was feared to be very bad, uh, but it wasn't as bad as expected. Executives at Morgan and Goldman are reportedly set to launch uh, say we're about expected to launch 20% more hedge funds this year than last year overall, Leslie, uh, because they did relatively well in March. And I'm, I'm interested that this asset class, which for years mm -hmm. we've been saying maybe on its way out because of fee pressure and too much competition and other things, is kind of a stalwart here. Well, I think what investors are looking at here is the potential for downside performance, especially absent yield that you could get in traditional, you know, fixed income credit-oriented assets. They're looking to hedge funds and saying, okay, there's a lot of uncertainty out here. Uh, you know, here we could invest with hedge funds and potentially protect our downside and preserve some of our capital. I think another aspect to this story, though, uh, and one that isn't getting talked about enough, is this idea that, you know, hedge funds weren't launching in the first quarter of the year because everyone was under lockdown. You mm. weren't able to go, if you're an investor, you weren't able to go to the offices and do due diligence and shake the hands of the manager that you're handing over you know, tens of millions of dollars to. Now, while there are certainly still lockdowns and restrictions and social distancing, people are starting to feel a little bit more comfortable to be able to do that due diligence, to be able to have those conversations, whether right. over Zoom or, or elsewhere. And it looks like that isn't changing anytime soon. So that pent-up demand for hedge fund launches, we're starting to see play out throughout the remainder of the year. Yep, don't count them out. Uh, it's still here. Uh, hedge funds, that is. <laughs> and finally, we're talking Bath & Body Works, bras, and beat-up jeans because Wells Fargo just hiked its price tar target on limited brands by 5 bucks to $35 a share, saying there's more upside ahead for L Brands after the company pre-announced strong second quarter sales. They reiterated their commitment to making Bath & Body Works standalone, something investors have really been pushing for, and also right-sizing, so to speak, the Victoria's Secret business. The stock has more than tripled off of the March lows, um, Rahel, I mean, I think this speaks to, with the uh, slate of retail bankruptcies that we've had, which brands are actually going to surprise us to the upside with some staying power post-COVID? Yeah, you know, I think Bath & Body Works is such an interesting story. So their comps were actually up 10 percent, even though their stores were closed for about half of the quarter. So people clearly still resonating with the candles and the, the body washes and that sort of thing. In the meantime, Victoria's Secret, their sales are expected to fall about 40 percent. So it continues to really be a tale of two very different stories. And analysts think that uh, the cost-cutting measures that they're taking, L Brands are taking with Victoria's Secret, will make it attractive for a, a potential buyer down the line. So that's part of the reason there, too. Yeah, and talk about the new kid on this block, guys. This is the story we all love from the journal today. Uh, they're pointing out that there's a huge secondhand kind of gray market of clothes on Instagram. So people are paying, I mean, what they say are vintage vendors, basically buying a used Carhartt jacket for $325, SEMA, and 
if maybe it's good for Instagram because they've been trying to do more shopping, more commerce. But it, these buyers feel like they're avoiding some of the fees and charges that come with the more legit platforms. And I wonder where this is all headed. Yeah, who's paying $325 for a distressed jean jacket? I don't know, but I guess it speaks to just how <laughs> important Instagram is for a lot of these retailers. And if they can do a really good job at crafting their message and their strategy and taking, em taking aim at that Gen Z audience, then, then perhaps it works. Yeah, they're saying no one has a Kelly Blue Book yet for 40-year-old Carhartt <laughs> pants. Uh, but maybe we'll get something yeah. like that as a result of this. Thank you all. We appreciate it for Rapid Fire today in the midst of the tropical storm. We didn't lose anybody. Uh, Seema Modi, Rahel Solomon, and Leslie Picker. Coming up, if the pandemic got you thinking about retirement, there's a new report out detailing just how much money you would need to still make it happen. We have the new numbers ahead. Welcome back. If you've been dreaming about and planning for retirement, there's a new study that shows just how much money you need now to make that dream a reality. Sharon Epperson is here with the details. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Kelly. You know, you should have about $2 million. That's how much 401k savers think that they're going to need in order to retire. And that's according to a new survey that's out today from Charles Schwab. They looked at 401k participants and asked how much they think they'll need. They said about $1.9 million on average, and that's 12% more than the $1.7 million that they thought they needed when this survey was done a year ago. What's changed during the pandemic? Well, savers are more engaged with their 401k plan. They may be calling, going online, using mobile apps, but they're still uncertain about whether or not they're going to be able to reach their retirement goals. In fact, only 37%, according to this survey, think that they're very likely that they'll reach those goals. 21% say they'll have to retire later than they planned. And 14% said they're not likely to reach their retirement goal at all, Kelly. Yeah, and those rules of thumb, Sharon, like the 4% rule about how much you can withdraw, if that's only 3 or 3.5% 3 because rates are so low, it means you need more. And I mean, you can't it's no one's fault that COVID happened. You might have thought you need 1.9 million or something and suddenly you need two and a quarter. I mean, you can, I don't know how you make that up. Yeah, you, you definitely will, may need more than you think. And the fact remains that people need to be mindful of how much they can put in this year and try to max out. This year you can put in $19,500 into a 401k. If you're 50 or older, you can put in an extra 6500 with a catch-up contribution. And that's what po folks need to be thinking about in terms of if they have any extra resources, putting that money away. Although I must say, Kelly, that some financial advisors I talked to said there might be a little bit too much focus on retirement goals in terms of financial planning, especially with what people are going through today. Yes, you might need to save more, but you also need to think about what's important to you right now. How has this changed, this COVID crisis changed, what your values are, yeah. and then envision what your future is going to look like there. That'll help you reach your retirement. Absolutely. And still a good reminder about some of those catch-up contributions. Sharon, thanks so much. Sharon Epperson. Sure. And for more, head on over to cnbc.com slash invest in you. Coming up, as August gets underway, the mortgage is due for thousands across the country. We're going to look at how many still can't pay and the ripple it could have across the industry. And join the CNBC Small Business Playbook Virtual Summit with Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg, Goldman's Margaret Anadu, and entrepreneurs Kevin O'Leary and Gary Vaynerchuk. It's all about providing small business owners with resources to survive today's crisis and a path forward to thrive tomorrow. And you can go to cnbcevents.com slash playbook to register.
Welcome back. Now that August mortgage payments are due, we're getting some new numbers on how many homeowners are opting to delay their payments due to the pandemic. Diana Olick is here with the very latest. Diana. Kelly, the number of borrowers in the mortgage bailout is shrinking slightly, but with some red flags. The bailout includes both government and private sector relief for homeowners, allowing them to delay monthly payments for up to a year. Now, 7.67% of all mortgages outstandings are in forbearance now, and that's down from 7.74% last week. That translates into 3.8 million homeowners, all according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. Now, by loan type, the numbers are dropping for loans backed by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and for loans in private label securities or held by banks. But FHA mortgages and forbearance are still increasing. Now at 10.28% of all FHA loans, that's twice the share of Fannie and Freddie loans. FHA is a lower down payment option for borrowers with lower credit scores. So these are riskier mortgages to begin with. FHA is just over a quarter of the mortgage market right now. And another red flag, more than half of all loans in forbearance now are extensions from that initial three months, and that share is growing, meaning more of those in the bailout now are unable to get back to making their monthly payments. Kelly? When does the forbearance run out? Well, you can go for up to a year. You can keep renewing and pushing it past another three months. At some point, though, they will have to go into modifications or it would have to be extended. The good news is, is they don't have to make these payments up until the loan is either refinanced or until they sell the house. But again, seeing that large share of people who are having to extend that forbearance program is not a great sign. Right yeah, now. the fact that it's half uh, tells you what it's like out there. Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. And meanwhile, home prices jumped nearly 5% year-on-year in June, according to CoreLogic. Now, that was thanks in no small part to record low mortgage rates and demand for people to move to the suburbs. My next guest says low rates have also brought about the highest level of home affordability in nearly four years, with some states seeing their lowest payment-to-income ratios in decades. For more, let's bring in Andy Walden. He's director of market research for mortgage data and analytics firm Black Knight. Andy, it's good to have you back. A very rustic setting today, which I uh, appreciate. <laughs> Um, but so where is a housing affordability at record highs? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, nationally across the board, the highest affordability rate when you take incomes, interest rates, and home prices in three and a half years, dating all the way back to 2016, when you start to look across the country, it gets a little spotty and sporadic, right? Areas that have seen incomes keep up with home prices in recent years and have seen more moderate levels of home price gains in recent years are seeing the highest levels of affordability in 5, 10, 15, in some cases 25 years. Other areas as little as two years. So some differences depending on where you're looking at across the country. We're showing a map. It shows Arkansas, Louisiana, West Virginia, Kentucky, Maryland, Iowa. Are people able to take advantage of this affordability or is it only happening because of the dismal economic situation? Yeah, and that's, that's the big question, right? I think the saying is uh, housing is the most affordable when no one can afford, uh, afford it, right? And so, I mean, there certainly is some offset and some headwinds driven by um, the, the elevated unemployment rates out there in the market as well. But for those homeowners that are still fully employed, that are able to go out there and shop in the market, you have about 10% more buying power than you did at the same time last year. And how much of that is just being translated into higher home prices? In other words, you know, all that low mortgage rates are ultimately going to do is mean that more people can access housing, push those prices up, and you kind of come out with no difference at the end. Yeah, that's the big question, right? And if you look at it dollar per dollar, you're saving about $65 per month compared to what you would have last year. 
You'd like to see homeowners put that money in their pocket. As you mentioned, that's not typically what happens. You typically, if you look over the last eight years, as interest rates have fallen, home price growth has increased. Now, the good thing somewhat, I guess, about this time is we do have that elevated unaffordability level. So you've got, you have some headwinds there to home prices as well. So we may not see the home price growth that you otherwise would have seen. That's an interesting point. It's going to be my final question here, because no one wants to see prices really start to lift off like we did 10 and 15 years ago. You're not seeing that? Uh, I mean, we, so, so far, the, what we've seen from March through June is kind of deceleration in home price growth. Now, we have seen rates fall even further. You could see parts of the country start to see elevated home price gains um, here over the next couple of months. But I think, again, kind of with what we saw with affordability across the country, I think it's going to be kind of a local and, and geographic type trend. Interesting. Andy, thanks as always. You always bring us a lot of great stats. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, Kelly. Andy Walden of Black Knight. And that does it for us on The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.